So last week we talked about, uh, the big idea last week was that this life is this breath. We, we, we've spoken about the, the, the problems of Ecclesiastes, um, particularly this idea that the life is habel. It is this breath. It's what we as Canadians see when we go outside and we, we breathe, we exhale, and we see that mist, that vapor, that breath escaping our lungs. And the problem that the that Solomon is addressing in the book of Ecclesiastes is this fleetingness of life. It's over like that, the monotony of life. It, we seem to be doing monotonous, redundant things. And that life is over like this, and it's, it's hard to figure out. So we've talked about the problems of the breath and the problems of the dish. And that's, that's kind of what... And, and last week really was the answer. The answer that's given in this book is that there is... There's beauty in these moments. There's beauty in this breath. That God has appointed every season and time for His purposes. And, and, and from the time we're born until the time we die, through the good times, the times of dancing and rejoicing, through the hard times, the times of mourning, we, 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 we believe and we trust by faith. Because Solomon has tried every other way of life. He's tried every other perspective. And this is what he's come to by faith and by revelation of God. God is indeed making all things beautiful in his time. And so we talked about last week, kind of we concluded with this idea of just, of just recognizing the sovereignty, that the meticulous and, and, and comprehensive love, care, providential love and care of God, that that every moment of our lives is ordained by Him, and therefore no matter what you're going through, whether good or bad, actually pausing and actually asking God, where are you in this? And God, please be revealing to me, where's the beauty in this breath, in this moment? And if I can't see it, God, help me to trust you in this. And that's kind of where we left last week. Well, what's happening this week and the, the, you may have picked up on this as we just read it, is that Solomon is beginning to now peer into the breath of life. He's beginning to look more carefully into that breath because he's anticipating that we will push back on him and his big idea that there's beauty in the breath. He's anticipating, uh, as he looks into life, that there are parts of our life that are not very beautiful at all, and, and that we're going to be, that are going to challenge this idea that God is making everything beautiful in this time. Particularly, he's going to speak to matters of injustice, oppression, um, parts of this, the, 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 our economic systems and how, how it's very difficult to see at times that God is actually making everything beautiful in this time. Um, and, and, and so that's what we're, Solomon basically peers into the hardness of life. And then again, he's using this, um, this method of wisdom. He's gonna, he's gonna peer into these, these very difficult things that we face as human beings, and he's gonna then reflect on them. And, and that's basically, we're gonna let him kind of lead us this morning as we look at this. So basically, Solomon's gonna look at those, those difficult areas. He's looking primarily in this chapter at two different areas. He's gonna look at systems of justice, and he's going to look at economic systems, right? He's going to look at those kind of institutional or social institutions, and he's going to look at where is God in these things? 
And the first, he has four observations, two dealing with systems of justice and two dealing with the economy. And he's going to look at these and say, where is God? And so first, and he looks at this and he says, there, there's, this is not beautiful. This is marred. It's ugly. Some of these things in life are ugly. And that's why I put this marred beauty in each of these things. But the first thing he notices when he looks closely at the breath is he looks at and he sees injustice. He says, moreover, in fact, a better translation is, he, he, he just talked about how God is making everything beautiful this time. That word moreover is also translated, and yet still. So although I believe that God is making everything beautiful in this time, yet still when I look into life, this is what I see. And this is what he sees. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. Then in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And what Solomon is speaking of is that these very systems and institutions that are in society to preserve justice often themselves are filled with injustice, are filled with wickedness, are filled with corruption. And he's struggling to understand this. So there's injustice in those who are tossed to administer justice. There's injustice in, for example, some police systems or court systems. There's injustice in court systems. There's injustice in legislators. There's injustice and bias in the media that's supposed to hold all these other institutions in check. He doesn't get specific because in each culture and in each society, we might we might have our own different things that we see as unjust or unjust in all of these systems. He doesn't he doesn't need to go into detail. If you want to go into detail, you can go and read the newspaper. You can read about corruption and injustice and unrighteousness and all these systems that are supposed to administer justice among us. He looks and he sees not only injustice, but he sees oppression. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. The, the word uh, oppression is concerned with acts and of, of abuse of power and authority, the burdening, trampling, and crushing of those lower in station. And the problem is not only that people are oppressed, that they're trampled on, the problem with oppression is that, I mean, the problem with, with oppression is that power differential. Is that when the, when, when the, when those who are oppressed and are trampled on are going to those court systems and systems of justice, the power is actually on their side. Right? So, so, so the problem is, it's not only that they're being oppressed, it's that when they're going to those systems of justice, there's wickedness in the systems of justice. And Solomon was actually saying, well, what can be done about this? And, Again, yeah, he's not necessarily giving us any concrete examples of this, because in every age and in every culture, every society, injustice and corruption ravage our social institutions in a multiple of ways. It could be corruption, could be nepotism, you know, favoring those who you're in relationship with, discrimination, unfair housing, labor practices. You can take your pick, and, and in every generation that's what we do, right? We take our pick. We take our pick identifying the social and moral issues and we say, these are the big issues of our day. And we put all our energy into 
do, keep doing whatever we can to try to remedy those, and then other issues pop up. This is, this is really the type of thing he's speaking of when he's saying, there is nothing new under the sun. It may be that we're focused on certain issues in our generation, but it's not as though if we ever had those figured out, there wouldn't be more that would rear their head tomorrow, because the problem is not ultimately in the systems, the problem is in the hearts of humanity that is creating the systems. This is a bit of what we're speaking of when we speak of total depravity, that everything we do as human beings is touched by and tainted by sin. If total depravity, that understanding of depravity, the, the Christian understanding of depravity is true, what that means is, it's not just individually that everything you do as an individual, individual is touched by and tainted by sin. It means that when we get together in society, when we set up these social institutions, guess what? There's no perfect society. There's no perfect institution. There's no way that the institutions we create are not are going to be immune to the fact that everything we do as human beings is touched by and tainted by sin. And so there's injustice, and, and so there's oppression. And I don't know what the things are on your heart or your generation. Like, we've got a number of different generations in this room. We've got a number of people from various different backgrounds. We have people from different countries. And I don't know what is your thing as far as, like, this is my cause. Each one of you, you might have one cause. Or you might have no cause. That's true as well. But you might have one cause that, that strikes your heart, and you're asking, God, how can I how can I truly say, God, you're making everything beautiful in its time when I am so frustrated by this injustice or by this oppression that I see? And whether you're politically on the right or on the left, you all have your causes. And if those causes were settled, guess what? Tomorrow a new cause would arise. Because there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon looks again. And here Solomon sees, this in this breath he sees competition, rivalry between neighbor. He says in Ecclesiastes 4.4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. The NASB, the New American Standard Version, um, helps us out here a little bit. It says, uh, all toil, all skill and work, or skill and labor, come from rivalry between man and neighbor. And here Solomon is uh, observing something very profound. He's observing that this rivalry between neighbors, this competition between neighbors, this rivalry is the key component in producing skill and labor. And let me tell you kind of how profound Solomon is. Solomon's probably writing about a thousand years before Christ. And he, and he just kind of makes this statement. All skill and labor comes from rivalry between man and neighbor. Right? Well, about 2,800 years later, um, there's a man named Adam Smith. He's called the, he's called the father of uh, economics. Adam Smith. Anybody studying economics here? All right, Colleen, you have. Oh, a couple of you guys are going to want to talk to me after this to make sure, and if I say anything that I misspeak anything, please let me know. Um, but Adam Smith is called the uh, father of economics, and in 1776, he he uh, he released his seminal work, The Wealth of Nations. Um, and basically, 
this is why he's called the father of economics for, for his work in this book. And basically, in this book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, he made two observations that are basically the observations that Solomon made 2,800 years before he released his book. Uh, in The Wealth of Nations, he, he speaks of the invisible hand of the market. And there's two forces of the invisible hand of the market. This is like economics 101. The two forces of the, so, so you should help us here. And the two forces that, that create the invisible hand of the market are two things. First, that self-interest is the motivator of economic activity. So th this idea is that basically, uh, this is the example he used. He said the baker doesn't bake bread because he really wants to feed your family. The baker bakes bread because he wants to feed his family. That's his idea, this idea of self-interest. Right? It's good for you that the baker bakes bread, but the baker's not breaking bread for you, he's baking bread for him. Okay? So that, that's his example he gives. Uh, the second, so, so his self-interest, his desire to feed himself and his family is actually what spurs and motivates this economy. And then his second big observation was that competition then regulates that. So like the baker, he wants to, he wants to make more money from baking bread for you, but he knows that there's another baker down the street. And so the baker is in competition with that other baker down the street so that you'll buy You'll buy his bread and not his neighbor's bread. So the baker will actually increase his skill in labor because of that competition. Because of rivalry against his neighbor, he will increase his skill of labor and bake you better bread. So it's good for you, it's good for him, it may not be as good for the baker down the street. Right? But that's what Adam Smith spoke to as these these laws of the market, these invisible, this invisible hand of the market. And basically, Adam Smith, all he's saying is the same thing that Solomon is saying here. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor or man's rivalry between man and neighbor. Okay, so this is the basic principle, but here's what happens. Some of, uh, some of you and some of us might say, wait a minute. If all toil and skill come from rivalry between man and neighbor, doesn't that mean, well, won't that mean that we're basically pitting ourselves against each other? And doesn't that mean that there will be winners and there will be losers in this competition? And doesn't this mean that some people will win and they'll prosper and some people will not? And that there will be disparity between the winners and the losers, and won't that lead to struggle between the classes, and won't this all lead to societal breakdown? And you'll notice that the word Solomon uses here seems to indicate there is a darker element to this. He says, this is, this is rivalry between man and neighbor. And the word he uses to speak of neighbor is a word that they, in the Hebrew also refers to companion or friend. And so here's the, here's the difficulty with this, and here's kind of the perplexing breathness of this. How is rivalry between man and neighbor consistent with the moral law of Scripture that we are to love our neighbor? How do you love your neighbor while you're competing against your neighbor? And so, in the name of social harmony, and in the name of equality, some people have tried to deny the principle altogether. Well, let's just remove competition between the neighbor and between the companion. Let's try to create an economic system that removes or minimizes the role of self-interest in competition. So how can we change the game so that everyone wins? Yet that has led us to the last 150 years of experimenting with denying Solomon's principle 
if we distribute everything equally, we're removing the motivation to develop skill and labor, which leads, as he says, it has led to, as he goes on to say in verse 5, it leads to starvation. Solomon's observation is it seems that an economic system can either promote prosperity or equality, and it can't promote both. And we're still dealing with that discussion today in, in our culture. How do we both preserve, how do we both pursue prosperity as a people and equity as a people? And it seems that we can't do both. But we're called the love neighbor. So that's Solomon's observation. His last observation has to deal with, I didn't know what to call this. Maybe you guys can think of a better word. But just this, this reducing of life to what you can produce. That's probably better than what I said, work-life balance. It's this reduction of your life and mine simply and merely to what we are producing. So he tells the story, this is what I saw. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So get what is happening here. It's not just that he's reducing his life for materialistic gain. It's not just that he's toiling his life away for work and for economic prosperity. It's not just that. What Solomon observes is that the system is geared so he never even thinks to ask himself, why am I working so hard? Right? He's working so hard, it's affecting his relationships. It's working so hard, he's toiling his life away in this job because the only thing that's providing, you know, the only thing that is providing value is how he's producing economically. And he's toiling his way as a cog in an economic system without actually considering who and what and why am I working for? And this is, a reductionism of humanity to being a cog in an economic machine. This is what happens in our society when we're reducing people's value solely on the basis of what are they contributing and how are they contributing to our economy. It's when we, we diminish the value of volunteer labor, we diminish the value of house labor, and we basically are reducing people to how are you economically contributing to our society. The final thing Solomon observes, and it's, it's, this is different than his other observations. The other, the first four observations he's observing something. This is more like a parable. It's how he concludes the section. He concludes with a parable of warning. And this speaks to the heart of what we do when we are confronted with economic um, injustice or, or systems of injustice. Listen to this parable he gives us. Okay? Here's the warning in this parable. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Okay? So, so let's just think and set up this. Well, I'll read the rest of it. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he, the youth, went from prison to the throne, although in his own kingdom he'd been born poor. And I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. 
There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Okay, so, so get this parable, right? You have an old king who doesn't listen to anyone. So, so he's a picture of a tyrant. He, he no longer is listening to anyone. He is a king who's ruling on his own will and on his own whim. And in fact, there's a little detail in this paragraph, well, well, it gets a little darker. He says this youth was actually imprisoned at some point. So he's a tyrant, he's an old king, doesn't listen to anyone, he rules on his own will and his own whim, and he's, and he's imprisoning any opposition. But somehow this kid, this young man, gets out of prison, and he was born poor. And so the people wind up around him because... They, the, uh, I'm guessing, the, uh, I'm th- thinking the assumption here is that he was born poor, therefore he must be standing for the people. He must, he's born poor, so he's the virtuous one, by virtue of the class of whom he's, he's born in. And the people line up around this young man, and they throw the support around him because they're sick and tired of the tyrant king. Okay? And, and, and Solomon says, this is what I've seen. I've seen the crowds and the masses and the popularity of these young kings who come along, or these young these young people who come along and say, you know, I'm for the people, you know, I, I've got new ideas, I've got fresh ideas, and everybody lines up behind them. Okay, here's how Solomon ends his parable. <laughs> this, is, this is his conclusion. Yet those who come after him will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. After you've thrown your whole support behind a person or a political party, and they become the ones now who are in power, it says the people know, the people afterward, they, they do not rejoice in this young man any longer. This cycle continues, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and here is why I believe Solomon ends with this parable. Solomon is basically pointing out to us that when we're confronted with uh, wickedness in the injustice systems, and when we're confronted with inequality in the economic systems, our natural inclination is to throw our support behind a politician or political party to be our savior, to be the one who's going to fix it. I'm going to be the one who, well, gosh, I don't think I'll get too much trouble here in Canada. I'm going to be the one who drains the swamp. And I'm going to be the one who cleans up Ottawa. I'm going to be the one who finally has the answers for how to fix this wickedness in our justice systems or this disparity in our economic systems. And we are... Ooh, sorry, can you put that back there? I hit this accidentally. And Solomon warns us that there are going to become these, these young people we are going to assume that because they rose up from the people, they're the virtuous ones who are going to provide the answers. And Solomon warns us there's nothing new under, sun, under the sun that is not necessarily going to be true. Do not put your so the message of this parable is do not put your hope in politician or party to redeem. Okay. So those are Solomon's observations. Let's get in a little bit to some of his meditations and reflections on his observations. All right. So I'm going to go back one by one. Go back and see what some. So, so if, this, if we're not to throw our, our hope behind politicians and party to save us, what are we to do? And, and just to simplify, and if you if you're zoning in and out today, here's the simplification of the entire message. Okay, right here. I try to do that for you because I know some of you zone in, zone out. 
Here's the whole point of, of all of Solomon's reflections can be can be summed up in this. Okay? All, this is helping me. You can take notes. All of his reflections can be summed up, and I'll, I'll phrase it two ways. Look upward and look outward. That's one way to put it. You can write that in your notes if you'd like to write that. Look upward and look outward. Or the other way is to use the phrase that the Salvation Army uses. Live with a heart to God and a hand to man. Live with a heart to God and a hand to man. That's the way the Salvation Army put it. So I actually actually put this uh, two-way screen. So so dealing with this idea, this, this problem of injustice in the systems of righteousness, look up a heart to God. And, and here's Solomon's first meditation. God will ultimately judge every action of mankind. How, how, when, and, and, and in what manner is injustice going to be dealt with? Solomon's answer is, God is going to judge the wicked. He says, I said in my heart. So this is his reflection as he, as he observes this injustice. His reflection, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time and a matter, for, there's a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon's reflection last, last, uh, last week we looked at this Solomon's reflection where he said, to everything there's a time and there's a season, there's a time to be born and a time to die, and I said that encompasses the full sphere of human life. Now Solomon realizes, no, it doesn't encompass the full sphere of every human life. Because there's a time and a matter, a time for a purpose and a matter that goes beyond the sphere of your life and death. What this means is there is a time for judgment. There's a time in which God will judge the righteous and the wicked. This is, at once, this is both comforting and it's comforting because if you are on the receiving end of injustice, or if you are on the receiving end of oppression, this is comforting because you can trust and entrust your soul to a God who, even if the systems of the world are, are corrupted with injustice, God is not. And if you are on the receiving end of injustice, and if you are on the receiving end of oppression, your hope is in the God who will judge the wicked. That they will not ultimately prevail. And so this idea that God will judge the righteous and the wicked is first comforting. And it is second correcting. The fact that God will judge the righteous and the wicked keeps us as humanity in line. Because we understand that there is absolute standard by which we will be judged. Now we as humankind do everything we can do to suppress that standard, to, percept, per, to, to suppress the knowledge of that standard, to suppress even our own conscience. When our conscience tells us this is wicked and we say, no, but this is what I want. We do all that we can do to suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. However, the fact that God is going to judge the wicked implies that there is an absolute standard of righteousness. There are, in fact, moral absolutes. And I know, because we have a lot of young people, this is a radical message in this day and age, that we, that we truly believe that there's an absolute moral standard. God's holiness, 
that we are going to be, that is going to judge us. Because we've been trained to believe that there are no absolute moral standards. There's only relative, objective, or subjective standards. And, and we've been trained by this, and I say we've been trained by this because this is so, like, it's so self-evidently untrue that there are no absolute standards. We begin to say that there is nothing that absolutely can judge anyone else's standards because everything else is subjective. We can't judge one another. There's no absolute. And you say, so would you judge someone who believes that there are absolutes? Are, are you making yourselves absolute standards? It's, it, it's, it's self-refuting, number one. But secondly, don't you, isn't this weird how, as we as a culture have thrown off any idea of absolute moral standard, how at the same time this outraged culture has like bubbled up to the surface? It's like there's no absolute standard, there's only my subjective standards, but 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 God help you if you should violate my own personal subjective standard. We it seems that we've given as we've thrown off this idea of absolute truth, we've we've given rise more and more to a mob mentality of immediate retribution for having violated someone's subjective standard. Maybe, maybe a better way to, to put it, um, there's a philosopher, J.P. Moreland, and he had talked about this. He had had an encounter with a student at a university in Vermont, and he was speaking on moral absolutes. And there was a student who said, there is no such thing as moral absolutes. What's true and right and good for you may not be what's true and right and good for me. And so he said, well, let's talk about this. Can I come to your dorm room? And they had a discussion afterward in the student's dorm room, and the, and the student was insisting that there is no absolute standard of right and wrong, whatever your personal standard of right and wrong is. And J.P. Morland, uh, okay, I've heard this story. I, I honestly don't know if this is a true story. But the story that I have been told and that has been published in books is that J.P. Moreland took the kid's stereo system and walked out the door with it. And he stole the kid's stereo system. And the kid chased him down the hallway and said, what are you doing? And he said, I personally subjectively decided that private property rights no longer exist and that I could take this. And the student said, that's ridiculous. Give it back. And he said, on what basis are you claiming that your moral authority is correct and absolute. And the joke he gave at the end was like, we should start a ministry on university stealing stereos for Jesus. To show people that they do believe in absolutes. They do believe in moral authority. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, the moral relativist will still get upset when he leaves the room and you steal a seat. That's how, that's how I first encountered this idea. And I thought that was funny. Like, the moral the relativist leaves the room and you just go and sit in your chair. And you come back and they are going to be offended. And so this idea that there is judgment, there is righteousness, there is a standard by which God is going to judge us is Solomon's first reflection. Solomon's second reflection in response to this injustice is that God uses these injustices that we might fear Him. He says in verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see themselves that they are but beasts. What basically Solomon is saying here is that the takeaway that we're supposed to get from this observation about how horrible human beings are, and how horrible our systems are, and how 
without, without any exception, sin and injustice and unrighteousness gets into our system so that we are oppressing each other and acting in unjust ways toward each other. What Solomon's saying, our takeaway should be from that is how beastly human beings can act toward one another so that we might fear him. And, and, and what we should take away from this is, is in turning away from God, we have fallen to the level of beasts. We live by be- like beasts, we treat each other like beasts, and we die like beasts. And that's what he goes on to say. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. This is the reality that's proclaimed from the first pages of Genesis. In the day you eat of this, you will surely die. And the response God gave to Adam and Eve, and actually there's a direct allusion in this text, the children of man, in the Hebrew is the children of Adam. As children of Adam, we are under the sentence that God gave Adam when he said, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so we are to see what what this injustice and this oppression that we're confronted with, it is to remind us of the fall of humanity. It is to remind us that God has a moral standard, and we have violated that standard. And as the New Testament proclaims, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And in verse 21, uh, verse 21 is tricky. In most English translations, if you look, uh, it, it phrases it as a question, almost like simply, well, who knows what happens to man after they die? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? The Hebrew there is not actually a question. It, it's not a question as if it's saying, well, who knows, like nobody knows, or who could possibly know? It's actually making a statement of fact about humanity. And it's better better understood as saying something like this. There are not many who take to heart as they ought to the fact that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth. So it's not, it's not a question. It's a statement of who is it that really knows there are not many that do that the spirit of man actually will go upward and the spirit of animals returns to the earth. And, and this then is the illusion back to when we die, the wages of sin is death and we will stand, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, we are not actually truly learning what we ought to when we see the wickedness and injustice of humanity. What we should take to heart when we see the wickedness and justice of humanity, is we should, to use this Ecclesiastes phrase, we should fall on our face and fear God. Because he is the righteous one, he is the one who will judge the righteous and the wicked, and we will stand before him, our spirit will go and stand before him, and we will be called to give an account of all that we have done in the body. And so the actual question Solomon asks in this, in verse 22, is he says, who can bring him to see what will be after him? And to be honest, this is my challenge right now to you. 
how can I, as one who believes in the word of God, how can I stand before you? How can I get you to see that your life will soon be over? That your life is a breath and you are going to die. And when you die, you are going to stand before a holy and righteous God. And he is going to judge you for the works done in your body, in your flesh. And you will stand before him as a creature that he has made. And he will ask you, what have you done? He won't need to ask, he will probe, and he knows whether you have lived a righteous life or whether you have violated his commandments. And Solomon said, there are are not many who take that to heart. And how can we awaken ourselves to understand that? And and he says in this passage, one of the ways he does this is he's testing children of men so that we would see that about ourselves. That we would see that we will stand before a holy, righteous God. That we will see that we will need to give an account of our righteous works in front of Him. I'm going to give you the last meditation, or another meditation to this, with this oppression. He says this, Look up a heart to God, death will bring relief to the oppressed. He said, I saw, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. His meditation here is this. God provides death as a relief to the oppressed. But here is the problem again. Solomon's assumption here is that that the, the wickedness and the injustice of mankind is directed toward the righteous who are oppressed unjustly. Now for Solomon, what that would have meant is that those who are unjustly oppressed are those who are, who are, who are doing what uh, the law, the Jewish law would have called them to do. But what they're called to do in the Old Testament is a few things. Entrust their souls to God. Love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength and with all their might. And to call upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the Lord and trusting in his promises that he will send the Savior Deliverer. So, so those who are oppressed are those who are righteously awaiting and, and, and trusting themselves to the promise of God. And those are the ones to whom death will be a relief. Those are the ones who, who, who death will be an escape from their oppression, from the wickedness that is directed toward them. And then we know, because of what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, we know that death is not going to be a relief to all people. Death is not a relief to the wicked. Judgment is what awaits after death for the wicked. But what death is a relief for, death is a relief for those who are entrusting themselves to the Holy God. And so, in the New Testament, this is we have obviously a, a much better picture of what this, of, of what Solomon would point us to is that death is a relief to those who have trusted in and entrusted their souls to our God. Why? Because Jesus Christ our Savior has come. That although God has an absolute standard, we all have violated that standard. We all have sinned against God in his absolute standard of righteousness. But what God has done in Jesus Christ was he sent his son into this world to live the life that we could not live. He lived a perfect life. He lived a completely just and moral life. He lived a life on our behalf, and he satisfied God's just requirements by dying for sin on the cross. 
That is what he's done. And so all who hope in him, all who hope in him receive forgiveness of sins in his name and are clothed with his righteousness. So that when we face and when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we claim not our own goodness and not our own righteousness, but we claim the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. And that is why for us, death is a great relief. That we don't fear death, we don't fear justice, or we don't fear God's judgment, we don't fear condemnation, because we rest in the finished work of Christ. Now Solomon, did he understand all of that? No, not to that degree. But he understood that those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. And that death would be a release from oppression. And so this is my question for you. How about you? And this is, this is, this is individually the question that each one of you must search your soul. If you were to die today, if the breath of your life would be over, if the, if the, if your soul would, if your body would return to dust, if your soul would ascend to heaven to stand before God, and he were to judge you as righteous or wicked on the basis of your works, what would be your plea before him? What, what would be your defense for yourself, for how you've lived before him? What would be your, your defense for how you have violated that standard of righteousness and holiness? And I will tell you this, there will be no relief for you, there will only be judgment for you, unless your plea is Jesus Christ. Unless he alone is your confidence and your boast and, and whom you have entrusted your soul to. <laughs> Do you know that if you die today, you would stand before God in Jesus Christ? That, that your only hope is his work and what he has done. And you would say, Lord, Heavenly Father, bring me into your kingdom by virtue of the work of your son. If you do not know that today, I'm pleading with you, before you leave, it's a slippery day out there, I would not like to hear this news, but it is a slippery day, and if one of you should get into your car and enter into eternity, do you know the Savior? Do you know the Savior? Do not leave here today without coming to God and entrusting your soul to Him. Saying, Lord, I acknowledge and I understand my sin before you. I understand I am complicit in these systems of injustice. It is in my heart. Forgive me of my sins and save me from them. To you, death will not be something to fear or be the release. I'm going to go quickly. I'm sorry. Uh, that's the part that we need to do to drive home. The rest of this is implications of how to live now as a Christian. How to live now as a Christian. Now is where, after, after we have made peace with God, after we have looked up to God and entrusted our soul to God, now here's when we open our eyes and we look around at one another and we actually begin to care for one another. And that is what brings purpose and meaning to our labor. So he says, um, Sorry, Solomon says the fool, how, 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 do we, how, do we, how do we live within these systems? He says, work and live for more than work. Your life is about more than work. He says, yes, the fool will fold his hands and do nothing, and that fool will starve. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. But the fool also is the one who with two hands strives after monetary things. So he says, better is a handful of quietness or rest 
than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Rest in God. Your life is about more than this economic value you're contributing to society. Realize that. Set boundaries and live your life for more than work. And finally, in response to this marred beauty, Solomon speaks to live with and for others, loving neighbor as yourself. This this whole sermon comes down very simply to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Live with and for others. He concludes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. We we might be in a a competitive economic system. That doesn't mean we don't look out for and work with our neighbor and our brother. He says if if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. There's assistance here that we give to one another. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. There's a better return. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A three-fourth pole is not quickly broken. Uh, this, this is a different way to live. The way that our generation is teaching us to live is to throw all of our weight and all of our hope and all of our claim and all of our resources toward political people or party that are going to fix the system. What Solomon is saying is there's a completely different way to live. A completely different way to live is actually not looking to people to save us, but to look up to God and trusting our souls to Him. And once having peace with God, we look around and we say now, who can I work with? Who can I cooperate with? Who can I assist? Who can I help? Who can I love? A heart to God and a hand to man. And, and that is what I'm praying for each one of us in this church. That we might, we might truly entrust our souls to the living God. That we might truly place our hope and our trust in Christ alone. And that in doing so, and having that receive that peace with God, we actually we actually truly care for one another as the family of God. This is what Christ has called us to. Heavenly Father, I pray uh, for our church. I pray for each single person here. 